Uh, welcome back to uh, the next session of this uh, this course. It's been fabulous so far, and I'm sure that's going to continue uh, because we have yet another world class expert to, uh, to help guide us through a complicated topic. Uh, Charles Flexner, Charlie, as I tend to call him, um, is a professor in. I was looking through his uh, his bio, and he's in different schools and departments and divisions, all at Hopkins. Uh, and basically encompassing in his work, uh, pharmacology, especially of, of anti-infective drugs, uh, especially, especially HIV has been really instrumental in, in a lot of what we've, uh, developed over that, over the years and both, both domestically and internationally. And, uh, he's going to take us through, uh, a really, uh, important topic, which is the polypharmacy that can accumulate uh, in, in pa patients as they age, including our, our HIV infected patients. So Charlie, sorry if I shortened your bio by about 95%, but, uh, we welcome you and I'm sure you're going to do a great job. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for that, uh, uh, flattering introduction. Uh, it's great to be here. Great to see all of you. Uh, and, uh, look forward to, uh, great, uh, second half of this, of this, uh, conference. Um, I am going to do a case-based presentation, and um, my case-based presentation, I was asked to focus on um, drug interactions and polypharmacy in the in the elderly or the aging population. Um, so um, here are my uh, disclosures. And uh, here are our learning objectives for today. So here's our case. Uh, this is a 59-year-old man with a long history of HIV infection who was heavily treatment experienced, as you will soon see from his current ARV regimen. Uh, and he was referred from the urology clinic for advice about a drug regimen for prostatic hypertrophy and urethral obstruction and specifically finding a regimen that would be compatible with his current antiretroviral drugs. He's previously healthy except for uh, gastro, gastrointestinal or reflux disease, a uh, history of depression, and a history of a uh, variety of sexually transmitted infections. He's currently taking a Traverine 400 milligrams per day, Darunavir 800 milligrams per day, Cobisostat 150 milligrams per day and Dalyategravir 50 milligrams per day, all given uh, once a day at the same time. He's also taking omeprazole 20 milligrams per day, Maalox 30 cc's as needed for reflux, sertraline for depression 50 milligrams per day, and is still taking trimethoprim sulfa because of a low CD4 count. So let's talk about polypharmacy in HIV and how big the problem is. This is a, a, a figure from a paper published by Janice Schwartz at a, geri a geriatrician at UCSF uh, in 2007, looking at the increase in prescription medications with aging. Uh, and the top of the figure shows individuals in the decile of 65 to 74 years of age and in the bottom are uh, people over 75 years. And what you can see is that in pretty much all drug categories here, there's an increase in the number of prescriptions 
uh, with aging and uh, in both men and women. Um, and not surprisingly, the drug categories most commonly being used in these older individuals are drugs for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, uh, antidepressants, uh, and, and anticoagulants. So this leads me to our first audience response question. We're going to have several of these embedded in my presentation. So, Stephanie, if we could flash that. Uh, in the Danish HIV cohort study in 2010, what prescription of patients over the age of 59 were taking five or more non-HIV prescription drugs? So this is, I'm asking you about the non-HIV prescription drugs, not the uh, HIV prescription drugs. So, Stephanie, let's give people about 10 seconds to answer this question. Uh, your choices are 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent, 50 percent, or more than 50 percent. And let's see what people think. Okay, so the uh, plurality thought uh, thir uh, more than 55 percent. Uh, more than 50%, uh, 35% of you, uh, another almost 20% said 50% and 28% said 40%, 15%, 30%. So the right answer here, it turns out, is 40%. Um, these, this is, uh, so 40% of patients over the age of 59 in this, uh, uh, study of 18,190 uh, HIV-infected patients in the Danish uh, HIV cohort, uh, including the HIV, 3,638 HIV-infected patients and plus controls. Uh, um, uh, this uh, shows that uh, in the HIV-infected indi individuals, 40%, a little more than 40%, were taking more than five, five or more uh, uh, non-HIV prescription meds. And another uh, uh, almost 40%, uh, we're taking uh, two to four. So uh, nearly 80% of HIV-infected individuals over the age of 59 uh, were taking two or more non-HIV prescription medications in addition to their antiretrovirals. And these numbers are higher than for uh, non-HIV-infected in, uh, individuals, even though this analysis is excluding antiretrovirals. Uh, that uh, same uh, difference uh, it was seen in the uh, in uh, another set of studies published in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, comparing a uh, pill burden increase in those HIV positive in the red in this figure uh, to uh, matched age matched controls who are HIV negative in the blue. And what you can see is that regardless of the age decile from less than 40 to greater than 60. Uh, there's a higher pill burden in HIV-infected individuals, significantly higher as compared to uh, HIV seronegative individuals in the same age bracket. Um, the analysis on the left includes antiretroviral drugs, and the analysis on the right excludes antiretroviral drugs. But even with that exclusion, this difference persists uh, regardless of uh, age decile um, uh, and is most pronounced over the age of 60. Uh, this is an analysis from uh, Alice Sang and her uh, colleagues at the University of Toronto looking at uh, prescription of drug categories in 
those under the age of 50 and those over the age of 50 in their HIV clinic, showing you that um, over the age of 60, 65% of their clinic population uh, were taking prescription drugs for cardiovascular conditions. 54% were taking antidepressants or psychotropics. 66% drugs for gastrointestinal diseases. Um, almost 40% taking narcotics, narcotics or analgesics. 16% taking systemic hormones like estrogen or testosterone. And um, uh, regardless of the drug category, more uh, patients over the age of 50 were taking uh, these prescription drugs as compared to uh, the, the HIV-infected patients in their clinic under the age of 50. Now, polypharmacy, I, I, I hope it's obvious that polypharmacy is common. Um, unfortunately, polypharmacy has lots of consequences for the patient, and the more drugs involved, the more consequences. So the first uh, and perhaps uh, most obvious is the increased uh, propensity for drug-drug interactions. Uh, this is anal an analysis showing that the more medications you're prescribed, uh, the greater likelihood of a drug-drug interaction. And of course, as we've said before, the older the patient, the more co-medications um, in the regimen, and therefore the greater risk of expected or unexpected drug-drug interactions. In addition, with an uh, increase in polypharmacy, there's an increased risk for adverse drug reactions. Um, in older patients, there's an increased risk for geriatric syndromes associated with prescription drug use, and that can include falls, cognitive decline, and orthostatic hypotension, all of which are common side effects of some of the more commonly prescribed drug classes in the elderly. Finally, as polypharmacy increases and becomes more complicated, there's an increased risk of non-adherence. And that's not necessarily the patient not taking the medications they were prescribed, but over-adherence, that is taking extra doses of a drug because the patient has failed to keep track of the number of doses taken per day can be an especially a problematic consequence of polypharmacy in the elderly. And that's especially true in individuals who have any form of neurocognitive impairment. So let's talk about polypharmacy specific to HIV and think about whether some drug categories may be more problematic than others. So this leads me to our second audience response question. Um, according to the Liverpool Drug Interactions website, which is my go-to authority for such things, which antiretroviral drug class is most likely to be associated with clinically significant drug-drug interactions? And your choices are NRTIs, NTRTIs, NNRTIs, PIs, NSTs, or entry inhibitors. So let's give people about 10 seconds to run through this question, Stephanie. I'm missing the music on these audience response questions. Maybe I could get Dr. Bolberding to hum a different song for each of these questions. Okay, so the um, uh, the group thinks that uh, protease inhibitors are most commonly associated with clinically significant drug-drug inter interactions, and I would say you're obviously a very experienced and knowledgeable group. 
because that is the correct answer. So let's go to the next audience response question. Same drug categories, but this time we're asking you which ARV class is least likely to be associated with clinically significant drug-drug interactions according to the Liverpool Drug Interactions website. NRTIs, NTRTIs, NNRTIs, PIs, NSTs, entry inhibitors. Let's see what you think. Okay, uh, 40% of you said NSTs. That is the correct answer. Um, NRTIs are a close second, but um, uh, again, uh, good, uh, good, uh, uh, good going on your on your part. And obviously, this is an audience that knows a lot about uh, their antiretrovirals. So this is a um, this is a, a, a figure taken from the uh, uh, data from the Liverpool Drug Interactions website, looking at about 750 co-medications. The green here means no potential interaction. The um, uh, uh, amber is an interaction of clinical relevance. The red is a drug that should not be co-administered and the yellow is a potential weak interaction. And what you can see, green is good. Uh, the biggest chunk of the pie that's green is highest for adalutegravir and bictegravir. Um, and it's lowest for the, uh, 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 for any boosted ARV, which would include uh, the uh, uh, protease inhibitors, um, and it's intermediate for the uh, NNRTIs and um, uh, 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 smaller uh, number of interactions, but greater than the NSTs for uh, rilpivirine and, uh, and viraberine. Okay, so uh, now let's start to get into problematic drugs. What are drugs we really need to start to worry about? So, so according to the American Geriatric Society, another uh, authoritative body, which of the following drugs should not be used in elderly patients? Um, aspirin, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, diphenhydramine, fexofenidine, loratadine. And for those of you who don't remember your generic names, I'll give you the opportunity to, opportunity to go Google it to find out what the brand names for these agents are. But uh, six drugs there. One of those, the American Geriatric Society says, do not use this drug in, in the elderly. Let's see what the audience thinks. Okay, good. Diphenhydramin. Excellent. So uh, diphenhydramin or Benadryl, when I was an intern and a resident, we used to love diphenhydramin as a sleeper uh, to induce sleep, uh, particularly in our elderly patients who were having trouble sleeping in the hospital. We loved it because it was not a sedative. And it, not a sedative in the classical sense, and it was non-addictive. However, what we didn't realize about it is that it has significant anticholinergic side effects, as is true for all of the potent H1 blockers. Uh, and the diphenhydramine can be associated with, um, uh, with uh, orthostatic hypotension, confusion, and falls in the elderly and should be avoided. So if you never knew this before, you know it now. Don't use Benadryl as a sleeper or as a or as an uh, uh, anti-allergy agent uh, in in your elderly patients. Okay, so we're going to talk now about potentially inappropriate medications or PIMs. 
What are PIMs? Well, uh, they are uh, uh, agents that should not be used in a specific setting or in a specific patient population. And in this context, we're talking about agents that are potentially inappropriate for the elderly. And these are data, again, taken from the American Geriatric Society. So this is a study that looked at uh, prescribing in 94 HIV-infected patients in the San Francisco HIV cohort. Uh, these are patients who were over the age of 60, uh, and uh, um, they, they, these prescriptions were compared to 28 age and gender-matched un- HIV-uninfected controls from the San Francisco Aging Research Center. And so when they looked first at medications classified as PIMs, or potentially inappropriate medications, 52% of these uh, uh, San Francisco patients over the age of 60 were uh, prescribed potentially inappropriate medications. Paul, what the heck is going on in your clinic over there? Um, as compared to only 29% in the aging research center. Um, of, the, of those potentially inappropriate medications, 17% had an anticholinergic risk score of greater than three. These are drugs that should be avoided uh, at all costs in the elderly as compared to only 4% of uninfect, of HIV uninfected individuals. And, and not surprisingly, the mean number of non-HIV medications was eight in the HIV positive patients and six uh, in the uninfected patients. And reasons uh, given for um, medication related problems uh, in the HIV infected cohort included the fact that HIV specialists uh, indicated that they felt less familiar with geriatric prescribing. So that should be a take-home lesson for all of you who are prescribing medications to your older HIV-infected patients. Okay, so um, here, uh, again, is a table of uh, particularly bad actors in the elderly. Um, these are drug classes uh, associated with um, potentially bad outcomes in elderly patients. And, and uh, many of these are classes that would be prescribed for age-related or age-associated comorbidities. So, for example, antihypertensives, not surprisingly, uh, can cause orthostatic hypotension or just plain hypotension. Um, benzodiazepines are a, 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 a class I hope we all learn to avoid in the elderly because of increased sensitivity to sedative effects and confusion. Um, there's increased sensitivity to opioids, to beta blockers, uh, and uh, also to diuretics in the elderly. And finally, as I mentioned before, I'm going to sound a, a bit like a broken record here. Drugs with anticholinergic side effects uh, definitely need to be avoided in the elderly because of agitation, confusion, dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention, um, uh, drop in blood pressure and, and, and falls. Okay, let's talk a bit about this patient's antiretroviral regimen. Think about uh, its potential for causing drug-drug interactions and, um, and what do we need to know in an older patient who may be heavily treatment experienced and may be taking an atypical antiretroviral regimen. So let's start with a combination of dolutegravir and atravirine. Can dolutegravir and atravirine be administered without dose modifications? Well, we know that atravirine reduces the concentrations of dolutegravir 
because it is a P450 inducer. And co-administration of these two drugs is contraindicated in the FDA package inserts, except in the presence of darunavir ritonavir or presumably darunavir cobisostat, which is what today's patient was taking. So probably atraverine, diatagravir, darunavir, and uh, cobisostat as a four-drug combo um, would be acceptable in terms of drug-drug interactions. One interesting thing about today's patient, however, is the atypical atraverine dose. Instead of taking atraverine at the approved dose of 200 milligrams twice a day, our patient today was taking atraverine as 400 milligrams once a day. And one has to wonder whether that could change the drug interaction potential or the P450 inducing potential of atraverine. It's an interesting question for which there happens to be no published data. Okay, what about darunavir-ritonavir or darunavir-cobisostat um, and atraverine? Can they be co-administered without dose modification? Well, we know that atraverine reduces cobisostat concentrations and therefore would reduce darunavir concentrations in the three-drug combo. And in the FDA package inserts, co-administration is contraindicated. But uh, one wonders about whether the way in which atraverine is being used in this case as a double dose given once a day might change the potential drug interaction. What we do know is despite this, I would say, a typical combination of antiretrovirals, this patient's viral load had been undetectable on this regimen for several years. So at least in this case, the combo appeared to be working, um, although whether that uh, effect was due to all of the drugs in the regimen or not, I think is speculation. Um, what about administering a travery in a treatment experienced patient like our patient today at a dose of 400 milligrams once a day? Um, as I said before, atraverine is only FDA approved as the 200 milligram BID regimen. However, atraverine has a, a very long systemic half-life, plasma half-life of 30 to 40 hours, which should support once daily dosing. Um, and I think the only reason atraverine has not been approved as a once daily drug is because the company never uh, went to the uh, uh, effort of doing the studies and presenting the data to the FDA to get approval as a once daily drug. We certainly do have clinical trial data, for example, the SENSE trial, showing that a 400 milligram once a day dose of atraverine plus NRTIs was equally efficacious as compared to efavirenz 600 milligrams once a day plus NRTIs. So there, there are, uh, I think, uh, well done clinical studies showing the benefits of once-daily atraverine. All right, let's go back to more typical drug interactions involving non-HIV medications. And, and let's talk now about uh, gastro, uh, drugs for gastrointestinal diseases. So what about proton pump inhibitors and, and acids uh, with this kind of a complex antiretroviral regimen? And that leads me to audience response question number five. Stephanie, if we could bring that up. So according to the Liverpool Drug Interactions website, omeprazole should not be administered with which of the following antiretroviral drugs? Is it atraverine, darunavir, cobisostat, ritonavir, dalyotegravir, or 
omeprazole can be given safely with any of the above. What do you think? Okay, well, the plurality of you got the right answer. Um, although this is a complex um, antiretroviral regimen, uh, omeprazole can actually be given safely with any of these antiretrovirals because their absorption is not pH dependent. And, and so giving it uh, omeprazole does not alter their uh, bioavailability. So this is uh, uh, good news, um, I think, for certainly for this patient. Um, and for others, um, the, the major issues with omeprazole revolve around drugs that are, whose absorption is pH dependent, like atazanavir. That would be the most famous one. But this patient was also on a PRN, um, Malox. Um, and we have to think about whether Malox would alter the absorption of any of the drugs in this regimen. Um, uh, interestingly, I, I think many of us would say that if somebody is taking omeprazole 20 milligrams a day, certainly omeprazole 40 milligrams a day, um, Malox should not be necessary for heartburn or reflux. And if the patient is still complaining of heartburn or reflux, certainly on a dose of omeprazole 40 milligrams a day, I would wonder about their adherence to their omeprazole rather than supplementing the omeprazole with, uh, with Malox because if taken once a day, certainly a 40 milligram dose of omeprazole should be quite effective for those symptoms. And that's especially important here because Malox and uh, related magnesium containing antacids uh, contain divalent cations that bind to integrase inhibitors like dolutegravir and uh, which this patient is taking and should only be administered two hours before or six hours after dolutegravir uh, and this patient happened to be unaware of that fact. So this is potentially bad news for, for patients taking integrase inhibitors. Um, and why is that? Well, the, uh, the divalent cation binding properties of integrase inhibitors leads to reduced absorption. And that leads to reduced concentrations. In fact, in this figure from a paper published in 2011, you can see that as compared to dolutegravir given uh, 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 as a 50 milligram dose by itself in this dark navy blue color, the uh, concentrations with uh, an antacid given at the same time are are reduced substantially throughout uh, the uh, throughout a 24 hour dosing interval. Um, if you give the antacid two hours after the dolutegravir, you still get a small drop in dolutegravir concentrations, but the trough concentrations are much more similar. And this is probably, uh, and, and, uh, this is probably, uh, um, uh, uh less likely to affect the uh, activity of dolutegravir, especially if you give, um, the, uh, 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 antacid six hours after administration rather than two hours after, as was the case in this study. Unfortunately, this is a, a pharmacologic effect that uh, is common to all of the integrase inhibitors. And that's because all integrase inhibitors exert their anti-HIV activity by interfering with a magnesium binding domain in the integrase inhibitor, uh, uh, in the integrase um, uh, uh, enzyme. 
And, and so um, this is a, a, an issue that is common to all integrase inhibitors. And you need to remember to warn your patients about uh, using magnesium containing antacids. Um, uh, in fact, I would argue just simply avoid magnesium containing antacids in patients taking integrase inhibitors to stay away from this problem. Okay, this patient had a history of depression. He was also taking sertraline. What about the drug interaction potential of sertraline? Well, sertraline is mainly a cytochrome P452D6 substrate. A travarine, which this patient was taking, is a weak 2D6 inducer and could modestly decrease its concentrations. However, darunavir cobisostat is a weak 2D6 inhibitor and could, in, in theory, increase concentrations. So this could be offsetting interactions. Uh, I'd say the clinical impact is unlikely, but I would monitor for sertraline efficacy uh, and increase the dose if needed because a reduction in concentrations is probably more likely than an increase in concentrations. Um, Dietegravir would not be expected to have any impact on a sertraline and because it's neither a, uh, uh, a cytochrome P450 inhibitor or inducer. And so uh, dietegravir can be administered, co-administered with a variety of antidepressants without worry about drug interactions. Okay, let's move on to what this case is all about. Um, and that is a referral from the urology clinic to try to come up with a drug regimen that uh, uh, could be safely used with this patient's complex antiretroviral regimen. And, and so we're going to move now to the three words that make every male over the age of 50 break out in a cold sweat, the urology clinic. So this patient had um, prostatic hypertrophy and had a history of urinary uh, 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 outflow obstruction of urethral obstruction from his enlarged prostate and was going to be in need of a, a corrective surgical procedure. But in the meantime, the urology clinic would like to start this patient on a combination of tamsulosin, 0.4 milligrams per day, and finasteride, 5 milligrams per day. Um, these are drugs that can shrink the prostate in someone with a significant prostatic hypertrophy. So what do we know about these two drugs, and would there be any problem adding them to this patient's drug regimen? Well, I'm not going to ask you audience response questions about this because I'm guessing most of you don't know a lot about the interactions between tamsulosin, finasteride, and ARVs, but I'm going to tell you what I think you need to know. So let's talk about finasteride first. Can finasteride be safely administered? with this uh, ARV regimen. Well, finasteride is a cytochrome P453A4 substrate. Um, etrovirine is a cytochrome P450 inducer and could decrease concentrations of finasteride. But darunavir cobisostat is a 3A4 inhibitor and could increase concentrations of finasteride. So this is another one of these situations where you have two possible drug interactions that are working in opposite directions from one another. So what do you do? Well, I, I think the clinical impact is unclear, but since finasteride is being administered for symptomatic relief, 
I would simply monitor for um, uh, finasteride efficacy, that is relief of this patient's um, urinary retention symptoms, and also keep an eye out for unexpected toxicity, which in the case of finasteride would would mainly be re- revolve around unexpected um, hormonal effect, anti-hormonal effects. Um, again, dalutegravir not being a uh, 3A4 inducer or inhibitor, no interactions expected with dalutegravir. Okay, so that's finasteride. What about tamsulosin? Uh, well, uh, um, tamsulosin is both a 3A4 and a cytochrome P450 2D6 substrate. Um, a traverine is a SIP inducer and could decrease its concentrations, but darunavir cobisostat is a SIP inhibitor and could increase its concentrations. This is another one of those scenarios where you get conflicting drug interactions working in opposite directions, and you're not sure what to expect. Um, I, all, all I can say about this interaction is um, that tamsulosin has been safely administered with other cytochrome P450, 3A4, and 2D6 inhibitors. And so in its the tamsulosin package insert, it, it says you can give these drugs together with caution. But it's important to note that tamsulosin is an alpha-1 antagonist, and that's how it exerts its pharmacologic effects in urinary retention. And alpha-1 antagonists can lower blood pressure uh, and especially can cause orthostatic hypotension. And that can be especially problematic, as we now know, in the elderly. And and so this is another one of these drugs that I think needs to be on the watch list uh, for an agent that should be used with caution in individuals over the age of 59. Um, And that's especially true in the setting of a cytochrome P450, 3A4, and or 2D6 inhibitor that could raise its concentrations. So what do we do about tamsulosin? Well, I would say the clinical impact is unclear, but we need to monitor this patient for uh, tamsulosin efficacy and for unexpected toxicity, especially postural hypotension, and question this, this patient in the clinic about, diz- about dizziness especially orthostatic dizziness. Um, Finally, as is true always when managing uh, uh, polypharmacy in the elderly, start with the lowest possible dose, in this case, 0.4 milligrams, which is what the clinic was proposing to do. So I want to finish with some general approaches to the management of polypharmacy with a special emphasis on how to manage uh, the elderly. So there are a number of things that geriatricians run through in trying to manage complex medical regimens. One is to make sure you revisit the patient's complete list of medications at every clinic visit, including a comprehensive list of all the -the over-the-counter medications the patient is taking. That's become easier with electronic health records but if a patient is seeing more is being seen at more than one institution, that can be complicated. So make sure you're looking at all of the patient's medications and not just the ones you are prescribing. It's important to review each prescription to make sure it's medically necessary. Um, I, I've told this story before, 
but uh, about uh, 80% of the patients in our clinic, HIV clinic here, are taking a proton pump inhibitor, and nearly two-thirds are taking an antidepressant, which seems rather unusual because two-thirds of the population doesn't report depression, and 80% of the population doesn't report, report reflux requiring a proton pump inhibitor. But the real problem is that these medications tend to be prescribed once for one complaint, including for reactive depression after the death of a loved one. And once they appear in the medical record, they're never discontinued. No physician feels empowered to discontinue a proton pump inhibitor or an antidepressant because they're worried about the potential consequences of that. But much of the time, these medications are prescribed for temporary symptomatic relief and the patient doesn't need to be taking them forever. So always think about whether this is a medication the patient still needs to be on, particularly if you are not the person who prescribed it to begin with. So simplifying regimens is important by eliminating unnecessary drugs, but also simplifying dosing regimens whenever possible. Don't give a drug uh, two or three times a day when you can give it once a day. Um, make sure that you check for drug-drug interactions by looking at a, a, a drug interaction website or app like the University of Liverpool. Uh, check also or think about drug disease interactions, liver and renal disease especially. Think about potentially inappropriate medications or PIMS in the elderly. Um, and also think about patients' needs, medications they might benefit from that might be missing. Um, the American Geriatric Society has developed beers criteria and stop and start criteria to check for um, uh, the appropriateness of a medication in the elderly. And for those of you who are interested, I would invite you to familiarize yourself uh, with these kinds of medications. I think they're pretty much common sense, but just important to think about whenever you're seeing a pa patient in the clinic, particularly if a patient has symptoms you can't attribute to disease and might actually be caused by medication. Um, and, and finally, here are, you know, the bad actors. Uh, these are the anticholinergic drugs, the three-point drugs, the two-point drugs, the one-point drugs. Remember drugs like diphenhydramine, um, uh, amitriptyline, adoxepin, uh, florazepam, uh, 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 these are drugs that are associated with significant anticholinergic effects, and these effects are more pronounced in the elderly and can lead to clinically significant, really life-changing uh, side effects. A fall and a hip fracture, remember, uh, can be a life-changing event uh, in your elderly patients and something to be avoided at all costs. Okay. Um, finally, how do you keep track? Of, uh, of things like drug-drug interactions. Um, uh, I hope this is obvious, but um, I like this resource. This is the University of Liverpool um, drug interaction app. It's available in both an HIV drug and a hepatitis drug uh, format. Um, I, I think they're both, they both contain the same information. It's just the setup is different. You select the antiretrovirals and then you select any other drug in the patient's regimen and ask it to run uh, an analysis to look for known or potential drug-drug interactions. Um, it's very easy to use. Uh, it's very compatible with smartphones. Um, I have it on my phone. I hope you have it on yours. 
It's something that's really easy to pull out and look at in the clinic if you have any questions. Um, in some ways, it's better than a pharmacist because you don't have to pick up the phone and call it. It's right there on your phone. But um, I think I, I think this is the kind of a of a clinical resource that can be very valuable for you um, if you run into questions about polypharmacy. So um, that is uh, that's the those are the important points I wanted to I wanted to discuss today. Um, he, here is a, a, a brief summary of, uh, of what we've just run through. Polypharmacy is a common issue in patients over the age of 59. HIV infected patients tend to be prescribed more medications than aged matched controls. Certain classes of medication are more likely to cause clinically significant adverse effects in the elderly. For example, drugs with anticholinergic effects. Medication review and deprescribing are important interventions to control pharmacy and something to remember every time you see a patient in the clinic who's over the age of 59. So I want to thank those who uh, loaned me slides for uh, this uh, presentation, especially Katia Marzolini at the University of Basel, who is an expert in uh, medication use in uh, uh, elderly patients with HIV infection, but also my colleagues at the University of Liverpool, uh, David Baxeku, Andrew Owen, and Marco Sicardi acknowledge my funding sources, um, and uh, I would be uh, happy to uh, uh, move on and answer any of your questions. So, Paul, back to you. Thanks so much, Charlie. Uh, super job, and I'm not going to defend the clinic here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I, I can't say our clinic is any better, but at least I'll, I haven't published the data. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet it's really a, a, a common problem. Uh, there are a number of questions coming in. Um, I, I wanted to start with one that we've tossed around here a bit. Uh, is there an age uh, above which you can start decreasing uh, medicines, perhaps statins, perhaps low-dose aspirin, uh, that are being used to prevent um longer-term outcomes in a patient who's now old enough that that's not likely to make much difference? Man, that is a complicated question to answer. So um, what, what do the data tell us? There was a huge study published in the British Medical Journal last year that showed no benefit in primary prevention for statins in patients over the age of 70. So that should be encouraging all of us to stop the statins in our patients over the age of 70. However, there was a study published last week. In fact, it's one of several studies showing the risks of stopping statins in someone who's been on them for an extended period of time. So when you stop statins, regardless of the age and regardless of the length of time the patient has been taking them, Presumably, they were taking them chronically for prevention. There is a significant increase in cardiovascular events in the months after stopping statins. And and the explanation for that is not entirely clear. Um, It may be related to the anti-inflammatory effects of statins and some rebound inflammation when the statin is discontinued. So where we are right now is statins don't appear to have much clinical benefit in pay, for primary prevention in patients over the age of 70, but stopping statins is, is a really, really bad idea. 
So how are we going to deal with that? I don't know. One possibility would be to taper patients off of the statins very slowly and see if that reduces this, whatever kind of rebound it is that leads to the increase in cardiovascular events. But uh, but for now, I think we're stuck with kind of, you know, trying to weigh the risks versus the benefits. Great. So I'll continue my Torvastatin. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't, don't stop oh. until you, until you talk to your doctor first. And All right. even if your doctor says you can stop, I wouldn't stop cold turkey. Got it. Got I, it. I would, I would reduce the dose and then go every other day and then go every other week. And then I don't know how I would do it. I would not stop of cold turkey. So another question, um, are the long lasting injectable ARVs? You didn't really talk about those. Uh, can you t- talk about their interaction with the, uh, uh, acid type drugs? Yes. Yeah, so, um, long acting injectables, there's only two approved, uh, real pivoting and cabotegravir. They are not affected in any way by, um, antacid drugs or, or, um, proton pump inhibitors, not surprisingly. They're not given orally. Um, most of the uh, effect of, uh, of proton pump inhibitors and um, of antacids is uh, interaction within the lumen of the intestinal tract, not systemically. Um, I thought you were going to ask me about the drug interaction potential of long-acting injectables. That's a whole nother lecture. But the, the pharmacokinetic properties of these long-acting formulations is inherently different in the way they're metabolized and the drug interaction potential is therefore different. Um, still susceptible to inducing agents like rifampin, but much, much, much less susceptible to inhibiting to, to P450 inhibitors like cobisostat, for example. Well, we'll invite you back next time for that lecture. Uh, that can be the next lecture. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, Talk to us about, um, so we're all using EMRs these days and EMRs often have a, you know, these alerts that tell us if we're prescribing drugs that might be potentially interacting. Uh, how, do, how does that compare with going to the websites and really specifically looking at, at DDIs? Uh, that is another, it's another great question. Um, my experience with EHR drug interaction alerts is they're unfiltered. And, and so anything with any potential drug interaction is often flagged by these systems. And in, in part, that may be because the people who run electronic health records are inherently risk averse because they don't want somebody to come along and say, my patient had a problem that could have been related to this drug interaction you didn't tell me about. So therefore, they're going to tell you about every imaginable drug interaction um, whether it's a 10% increase or decrease in your drug concentration or a 300% increase or decrease in your drug concentration. What I like about the Liverpool Drug Interaction website is it is filtered. Uh, it's very authoritative in terms of evidence cited for making the recommendation about whether or not to co-administer drugs or whether to use caution. And so whenever there's published literature, it will be referenced in that app. Um, and if there are, if there's a theoretical reason to expect an interaction, but there's no evidence, they'll tell you that as well. Um, and the other thing I like about the Liverpool app is there is a panel of individuals that includes physicians who review and approve the recommendations before they are posted. 
And that's not always the case with these um, uh, micromedics and equivalent pharmacy based um, uh, programs, uh, which, which tend to just give you raw numbers. You know, there was a 14 percent increase in drug B when given with drug A. And therefore, BIP, it appears in your EHR every time you try to put drug A and drug B together. So, so I would be careful about how well filtered those um, uh, those uh, recommendations are and maybe back them up by looking at something like the Liverpool website if, if you run into problems. Great. Uh, question about the beers criteria. Um, you need to give us a little more guidance um, on uh, with aging for um, individuals who are greater than 50 um, and apparently the beers criteria is really aimed at people over 65. Do you adjust that because of HIV and aging? So I, you know, now that I'm almost 65, Paul, I can tell you with certainty that age is just a number. (laughs) And so I, I don't look at the patient's age nearly so much as I try to look at the patient's physiology and what they're actually taking and why. And so, you know, I have, I have 50 year old patients. I would qualify, I would, I would qualify as being elderly and I have 80 year old patients. I would not qualify as being elderly. So, so I think a lot is related to the underlying physiology of the individual, uh, how you would assess their cardiovascular health in particular. Um, Sir William Osler used to say the age of a patient is determined entirely by the fitness of his arteries. Uh, and um, I, I think a lot of that relates to susceptibility to some of these uh, adverse effects. So I, I, I think Beer's criteria are good for giving you general guidance about categories of drugs that can provide, that can produce trouble in people who have an elderly phenotype, particularly people who qualify as being frail, uh, which we heard about earlier in the day. But but I, I I personally would base that on the patient's physiology, not on their age. Great, great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Charlie. We have several questions that I didn't have time to uh, to address, but that's the beauty of the panel that we're going to have at the end of the program. We'll save those questions and try to get uh, to them uh, at that time. So thank you very much, Charlie. Great. Uh, great. great. And I'll, I'll turn see it you back. Yep. Yeah, I'll turn it back to Connie.